Hey, welcome to Centennial Church. My name is Ross. This is a, the part of the service where I like to come and embarrass uh, people. We're going to uh, do that here in just a second. Longest traveled. I thought it might be the folks from Sulphur Springs, which is great. Thank you so much for joining us, Bridget. Great job. This is Bridget's uh, parents here joining us from Sulphur Springs. That's a long, how, how long of a drive is that? Hour and 15 minutes. Okay, well, this gal over here came from Kentucky this morning. Okay, not exactly this morning, but Bethany, stand up. Many of you will remember Garrick and Bethany and Eli and Lily were with us for several years. Give it up. Uh, all the way from Louisville, good to see you, Bethany. And Garrick, I assume, is studying off at a, in, in Israel. Oh, awesome. Excellent. Well, great to see you. Are the kids back in the back? Are they here with you? Awesome. Um, speaking of Father's Day, uh, I, I thought about this as you all were walking in. I know we have this morning two generations, so dads and grandpas here. The Funkhausers, okay, so Rich, stand up, let me embarrass Rich, and then Eric, so dad, grandpa, and then kids as well. And then back, I noticed back here, the Coxes, we have uh, uh, three generations represented. So that doesn't, that doesn't happen uh, all the time. Did, did I miss anybody else? Three generations in Centennial? I think that's the only ones I know of. Hey, let's, let's just, uh, let's admit it, um, all of our families are messed up, right? I mean, we're all uh, a little dysfunctional in some way. Uh, it, it may not be exactly like the Griswolds, but in some way, we're all uh, just a, a little bit uh, better off and worse off because of the family that we are born. Uh, one of the beauties of church, one of the designs of the church, actually, uh, is that if you came from a crummy home, or even if you came from an average home or a good home, guess what? Uh, the church family is supposed to be your adopted family. I love uh, for my own kids whose grandparents are miles and miles apart that they have uh, uncles here, adopted uncles, adopted uh, grandmas and grandpas, and, and, and uh, they're due to come over to your house pretty soon, by the way, too, grandmas and grandpas, wherever you are. Uh, we need a break. But uh, that if you haven't had the perfect dad or if you're a single mom and you're here this morning and dad's not in the picture, that the church family is supposed to come alongside you and uh, be that adopted dad, to be that help. Um, because guess what? You know, all of us are in some ways, in some sense, uh, from broken families. And it's the body of Christ that's supposed to come around here and uh, help one another, right? Uh, and that's not even the sermon this morning. That's just, that, that was free, okay? You don't even have to get in the offering plate for that one, Jim. Um, we do need to pray before we jump into God's Word this morning. Jim Wilson, who's usually sitting over here, Jim had surgery last week on his knee, and so I want to pray for him this morning. I know, uh, if I know anything about Jim, I know it's, uh, he's very grumpy when he doesn't feel well, so we need to play, pray not only for Jim, uh, but also for Ginger. And I see the stall cups back here, too. Here's a praise. You guys stand up. Let's embarrass. They uh, got a, a daughter-in-law yesterday, right, or Friday night. Uh, so congratulations. Logan, Logan got hitched, uh, so awesome. And Becky told me that she's running on four hours of sleep. So uh, if she falls asleep during the sermon, Wes, just step on her toes, okay? Please, you have, you have my permission. Uh, let's pray um, and just thank God for um, new family, for dads, uh, for recovery, for Jim, and, and uh, uh, for this gift that he's given us in one another. It is. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, come to you this morning, sons and daughters, amazing that you have made us sons and daughters, and we can come to you because of your son, Jesus. 
Father, we pray for Jim as he heals uh, from this surgery. We pray for him, and we also pray for Ginger as she cares for him. We thank you for uh, marriage. We thank you for Logan uh, and Caitlin and the celebration. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would bind them together, that you would protect them, that the evil one would have no way in their marriage, Lord, and that they would uh, have a family and a marriage that truly reflects you and your love for us. Thanks for old friends being in town. Thank you for Bridget and the gifts of uh, the body of Christ that you get to um, give us in grace. God, uh, help us to be um, an extended family to one another. Help us to know one another. Help us to open our lives to one another, open our homes to one another, to bring children uh, into our homes, to be uh, the family of faith that you've designed your church to be. We want that, God, Holy Spirit, make it real. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Yeah, Romans chapter 6. We're back in Romans. And uh, by way of introduction, as you're getting there, let me say uh, we have two mission trips coming up. One of them is in July. We're taking some kids and some parents, actually, to New York. And the other is in September. We're going to Haiti, and that that, uh, team is forming. But on Wednesday night, some of us were up here in a fundraiser for that New York trip uh, at the car wash. And as I was at the car wash... uh, Getting that 1998, 220,000-mile Toyota Camry, getting that nice and clean. Uh, I was speaking with Nancy and Dan, who were also here for the car wash, and, and we started talking and just kind of catch them up on the day's events. And, you know, it was on Wednesday. It was that day that that shooter arrived at that uh, baseball field as the Republican uh, congressmen were practicing and, and, and uh, shot the uh, congressman. We were reviewing that because Dan is busy, he's at work, he doesn't hear all these headlines, so we were reviewing that. As we talked about that, I, I let Nancy know that there had also, that same day, been a shooting in San Francisco. Did you hear about that? A UPS worker, I believe, goes into his place of employment, and I think four were killed in San Francisco the same day as the shooting in Virginia. What I hadn't heard about was also in London that same day. Uh, fire at a tower there in London. They say as many as 38 at least confirmed dead, maybe as high as 60 or 70 dead, still searching uh, for people from that fire. That's just three big bad news events on Wednesday in one day. Now, those are headlines. Those are in Virginia. Those are in London. Those are in San Francisco. It's not close to home. Just last week, as my kids and I were were out uh, playing in the front yard, our next-door neighbor, who's uh, probably in her late uh, 60s, early 70s, comes up, and, and uh, I could tell her she was, had some concern on her face. She sat down in the lawn chair there next to me and said, uh, I've got a brain tumor. Went in for surgery on Monday. Uh, just found out about this. They immediately scheduled surgery. A brain tumor the size of an orange right at the frontal lobe. She had surgery that Wednesday. Bad news. Bad news. Bad news. Bad news is all around us. It's in the headlines. It's on our phones. It's constantly popping up. We are surrounded by bad news. And the good news is that there's good news. And the good news is massive. And Romans is is this book about the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ that puts in perspective, actually, all of the bad news that's miles away or that's right inside our hearts that we're dealing with this morning. 
Romans is all about good news. I would say the theme verse of Romans is Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and Paul says this. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news. I am not ashamed of the good news, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The good news, this good news about Jesus is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is news uh, not just for today, but for tomorrow. It is news not just uh, in big cities. It is news not just uh, locally, but it is big news nationally, globally, historically, and for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, for people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. We're looking in Romans at this massive good news that frames the bad news and helps us, and helps us to focus um, on the hope that we have because Jesus has come and has done something. It's news, it's true, it's factual. He has done something that has changed the world and actually changes our hearts as we receive it and as we apply it into our lives. This morning we are picking up that good news story and explanation in chapter 6. And uh, so we're going to read from uh, chapter 6, verse 15, all the way through chapter 7, verse 6, and I've asked David Bartek, one of our missions partners. David and Jenna are on staff with the Navigators in Nashville and uh, back home for a while fundraising and, and being prepared to go back for the fall and minister uh, on the campus of Belmont and other campuses. So I asked David to read the passage for us, and I want you to do this. I, I want you to have your Bible open this morning. Uh, our authority is not me. It's not tradition. Our authority and our hope is, is in the Scriptures and so I want you to stand uh, with David in honor and respect of God's word as he reads God's word. Uh, go ahead and stand with us, and he'll read it and then pray for our time in God's word. This is Romans six fifteen through seven, um, through chapter seven verse six. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves?
Thank you, David. So as you look, this is a pretty thick passage, so there's a lot in here uh, to cover. The basic breakdown of the passage goes like this. In verse 15, we see this objection is raised, okay? In verse 15, we see the objection. In verses 16 through 23, we see the explanation. He's going to kind of answer the question or answer the objection. And then at the beginning of chapter 6, we, he gives us an illustration, and it's an illustration about marriage, okay? So that's kind of the way the passage breaks down. But first of all, we see the objection in verse 15, okay? He says, what then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then he answers that by saying, by no means, now, back up a little bit of review about what Paul's doing in the book of Romans, okay? Uh, here we are in chapter 6. There's 16 chapters uh, in Romans. And the first chapters uh, of, of Romans, chapters 1 through 5, Paul's aim has been basically to lay out the power of the gospel. In the first five chapters, he's talking about salvation and primarily this aspect of salvation called justification. Chapters 1 through 3, he said, you are all sinners, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, whether you are unrighteous or whether you are self-righteous, whether you have, have, have rejected God through rebellion or whether you have rejected God through your own kind of self-made religion, everyone is sinners. And then he's talked in chapters 4 and 5 about how we are saved from our sin or justified. The word justified means declared righteous. So we have this guilt and by grace... By Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross, we, we are justified by faith in Christ, which means not guilty. So Paul has been expounding this salvation, and, and when we first hear the word salvation, okay, when, when I say uh, Paul is talking about salvation, what's the first kind of definition or description that comes into your mind when you hear salvation? Well, like the teachers I talked to earlier before the service, probably what comes to your mind, as it does to mine, is being saved means being saved from hell, right? Having your sins forgiven. That's what salvation, how we typically define salvation. And that's true, right? That's true. But let me offer this. That is true, but it is also incomplete. Because as Paul lays out this gospel, this good news in Romans, he's going to say that salvation is not just justification, but it has a, a host of other aspects. It's like looking at a, at a diamond, right? It's got various uh, aspects to it. And salvation is the broad umbrella term uh, that God is doing. God is accomplishing salvation. But one aspect of that is called justification, where we trust in Christ and we are declared not guilty. Even though we are guilty... God declares us, because of Jesus, he declares us not guilty, or her, he forgives us. He acquits us, if you will. That's what we call justification. But justification is not all that God is doing in salvation. Because there's another aspect of uh, salvation, which is often called, rightly, adoption. Adoption is an aspect of God's salvation. What does adoption mean? Well, you adopt someone, you bring them into your family, right? They become your son or your daughter. And that is a fuller aspect, another aspect of the diamond that, that Paul is explaining about salvation here. Because, folks, the good news is God hasn't just forgiven us, justified us, though that's great. He's, he's notched it up because he's also adopted us. It's like we're standing before the judge and he says, yeah, you're guilty, but I declare you not guilty. 
Jesus has paid your sins, so now you are justified. You are not guilty. Hey, that's great. That's worth singing about. But you know what's even greater than forgiveness? is adoption. That the judge has not only released us, forgiven us our debt, but he said, hey, come on home with me. Why don't you be my son or my daughter? Salvation is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Salvation is a relationship, and, and the judge has not just released us, but he has adopted us into his family to be sons and daughters. Justification, adoption, there's also aspects of reconciliation that we saw in chapter 5. There's all these different words, various aspects of what God is doing in salvation. But another one of those big words is sanctification. And that's Paul's main point in chapter 6 is that God is sanctifying us. What does that mean? That word occurs first time, I think, in verse 19. That God is sanctifying us means he's not just adopting us into the family, but he's making us, he's changing us, he's transforming us to be like Jesus. He's sanctifying us. He's making us holy. We're growing in holiness. So God doesn't just save us, forgive us, and then leave us to ourselves. He saves us to sanctify us, to make us holy. If you look back in chapter 6, verse 4. It's been a month now since Dan preached the first part of uh, chapter 6 for us. But it says that uh, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He doesn't just save us to get us out of hell, but he saves us to walk in newness of, of life as sons and daughters of God. And that's all by grace. Now, the objection comes in chapter 6, and this is actually the second objection in verse 15. But the objection comes then as well as now, and it goes, the objection goes something like this. If salvation is all of grace, then doesn't that just lead to licentiousness? I mean, if, if, if salvation is all of grace then doesn't that just kind of give people permission to just kind of live, you know, wheels off however they want to? If salvation is all God's doing, it's a free gift, doesn't that just lead to licentious living? Or the question you might say like this, if we died or if, if salvation is all of God's grace, what incentive is there to live a good life? Or as he says, as Paul asked the question in, in verse 15, if we are no longer under the law, but we're now under grace, then why be good? Why do good works? And so that's the objection then, and you, we, hear the obje we see, you hear the same objection today, don't we? You're explaining the gospel to someone, you're sharing with them how to be saved, and you talk about God's grace, and you talk about Christ dying on the cross, and all you have to do, and oftentimes the objection is, so that, that just seems that I can just accept Jesus and go on and live however I want to, right? That sounds... That sounds like grace. That sounds like cheap grace. And Paul answers this question, well, if I'm no longer under the law, but I'm under grace, does it, shouldn't I just go ahead and sin all the more? And he answers that objection by saying, by no means. And if you circle that phrase, by no means, it happens at least four times in chapters 6 and 7 as he's talking, as he's unfolding this explanation of the gospel. He says, by no means. 
wrong inference based upon the truth. We are saved by grace. It's all of God's doing. He saves us. We don't save ourselves by our works. But often, this objection will rise. And here's the deal. If you don't get this objection, there's a good chance you're not being clear about the gospel. It's so free. It's so amazing that Paul was accused of encouraging licentiousness. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 8, he says, some, some have accused us. Let me just turn there. Some have accused us. Uh, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Again, false inference based upon grace. And he's saying, God's grace is not something that to take advantage of. It doesn't mean that we just go on and live like hell, even though salvation is all of God. This is a common historical question, and it's an objection that you and I are going to face as well. So how do we answer it? How does Paul answer it here? Well, to back up just a little bit, this is actually the second part of kind of these objections. If you look at the beginning of chapter 6, and again, it's been a month since we've been in the book of Romans with lots of things going on, but he, makes, he begins this case at the first half of chapter 6 by saying, you've been, you've been united with Christ. You've been united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ, then you can't go on and be the same person. You now are, are spiritually wed with Jesus. Martin Luther says it like this. Martin Luther has this great quote. I don't have it in my notes, so Lauren will put it up here on the screen. But listen to the way Martin Luther talks about union with Christ. He says, through faith, you are so closely So, false inference, false idea about salvation. Oftentimes we think, and oftentimes we even teach salvation like this. Salvation is a free pass to heaven. You, got, you accepted Jesus, you got your ticket, and now you hop off the train to hell, and you hop over here into this train that goes to heaven. And, and salvation, too often, is pictured as, as just a ticket to heaven. Okay? a transactional or commercial relationship. I just got my pass stamped and now I'm on my way to heaven. Incomplete understanding of what salvation means. Incomplete understanding. Later on in uh, chapter 7, in chapter 7, he's going to use this illustration about marriage. And he's going to say that you no longer belong to the law, but now you belong to Christ. You become the bride of Christ. You are married, and the Holy Spirit has come to live in your heart. And you have this new relationship like marriage. Now, I have never officiated a wedding or been to a wedding in, in which the, the bride and the groom, one of them, I suspected or ever heard them say, hey, you know what? We're going to go up here. We're going to get married. We're going to tie the knot. We're going to say all these incredibly powerful vows. But you know what's going to happen after I say these vows? Because they've promised, because they've wed themselves to me, I'm just going to take advantage of that and run off and sleep around and do whatever I want. 
If that were the attitude as you enter marriage, what I would say to you as the officiant or even as your good friend is say, you don't understand marriage. You don't use the vows. You don't use the promise. You don't use the commitment. Hey, they said till death do us part to just go on and do whatever it is you want, right? You've misunderstood marriage. And to say that salvation is just kind of getting your ticket stamped and hopping off one train and getting on the train to heaven, and that's kind of it, grossly misunderstands the fullness of salvation. Yes, it is all God. It is all God's grace. But more happens than just getting your ticket stamped, right? You become, you, be, you have this union now with Jesus by faith. You belong to him, and and not only do you belong to Jesus, but you have this new power called Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. That's the point here of chapter 7, verses 1 through through 6. The Holy Spirit comes and takes residence in your life. So if you want to change the illustration, it's like you've hopped off the train, but you've hopped off this train, and you've hopped off uh, onto the next train, but you have have a new uh, person right there with you. And it's the Holy Spirit empowering you for a transformed life. God saves you. He justifies you. But he also saves you by changing you. By transforming you by the same grace that he saved you. If you look back in chapter 5, verse 2, we were there months ago. Romans 5, 2 says this. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. He says that grace is not just something we get at the moment of conversion, but it's something that we stand in. And that grace continues by God's power to transform us. God doesn't just save us to forgive us. He saves us to transform us. Let me show you a very clear place where Paul says this elsewhere. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Titus 2, look at this with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our is the result of our salvation and the Holy Spirit working in us. It says that God is purifying for himself, redeeming us, a people that break out of lawlessness, who are zealous for good works. If you look back up at verse 12, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion. The grace of God not only forgives us of our sins, but the grace of God transforms us into the likeness of Jesus. Salvation is justification, and salvation is sanctification. And one day, we'll find this in Romans chapter 8, is glorification. We will be perfectly holy as we stand before God when Jesus returns or we go to meet him. Glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Back to Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Look at the logic. 
Those are a couple of reasons why grace doesn't just allow you to live however you want, but grace is, is transforming you and the Holy Spirit is living inside of you to transform you as you now walk in the newness of life. Those are a couple of reasons, but the reason that he says no to the objection in verses 16 through 23, we walk through that now. Look, look at how he explains this beginning in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Let's just stop right there. What is Paul's point? What is his answer to the objection in verse 16? What is he saying? He's saying... And this is so foreign to our modern Western ears. What, what is he saying in verse 16? He's saying, guess what? You're going to be a slave to something or someone. You're going to be a slave to something or someone. Wait a second. You know, I'm a, I'm a free person. I'm an American. I'm my own person. I'm not a slave to anyone. No, you're not. You are a slave to something or someone. And you will either be, according to this passage, a slave to sin and unrighteousness, or you will be a slave to obedience and sanctification. But you cannot escape being a slave. If alive, you will become a slave to something. Had a seminary professor who uh, would often say this. He'd say, the goal of life is to find a good master. The goal of life is to find a good master. And what he's saying is very similar to what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 6, is that something is going to drive your life. Something is going to control your life, and it's going to be sinful passions or it's going to be the Spirit of God. But you're going to be a slave to something. What happens in modern Western America today? We want our freedom, right? And particularly, we get in our late teen years, maybe out of college, I'm, I'm going to be a person who's free. I'm going to break away from the chains of my parents, break away from the chains of, of religion or the Bible or whatever that's kind of been holding me back. And so often, we see this or we've done this, right? And in our search for freedom, what often happens? In our search for freedom, we become a slave to the thing that we chase. What in the world could that be? money. Man, I'm going to go find my freedom. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to make a lot of money. And what happens five months, five years, five decades after that? What has happened in your search for freedom? You have now become a slave to money and to success. It drives you. It doesn't let you sleep. It, it makes you wake up fearful that you don't have enough of it or you're not successful enough. And what you thought was a pursuit of freedom now actually enslaves you. Same things happen to obviously Ill, obvious illustrations are drugs and addictive substances, things that we think we're exercising our freedom, but then come back and wrap their big arms around us and hold us tightly as slaves. I see the, the teaching of Romans chapter six here is that you are gonna be a slave to something or someone. 
and that before you met Christ, you, you were a slave to your passions, to your sinful passions. And because you become a Christian, that, that, that captivity, that slavery, the bonds of that slavery have been broken, and now you are free to walk out a free person. But what do we often do? Go back to the chains. Maybe you remember that great uh, movie, Shawshank Redemption. And uh, Brooks, I lost his I lost his name for a second. Brooks, he gets out of he gets out of the pen, right? He's never known freedom before. And he wants to go back to the pen because he doesn't he doesn't know life freedom. He he's free, but he can't handle it. He ends up taking his life. The teaching of Romans 6 is that our slavery to sin has been broken. We've, we've, we've died to sin. Its power over us is broken. We don't have to repeat the patterns. We don't have to repeat the sins that brought us down and continually kept us captive before we met Christ. We have a new power in that Holy Spirit who lives in us. That's what he's going to talk about in chapter 7 and as we get on in chapter 8, that the Holy Spirit is working inside of us, giving us a new power that we didn't have previously. We didn't just get the ticket stamped, but we got a new power, the third person of the Holy Trinity at work in our hearts, changing us and transforming us. That's why in chapter 7, verse 6, he ends this little section by saying this, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. You're not under the law, but you're under the Spirit. And He's supernaturally, powerfully transforming you. So in the old way, the law is good. He's going to say that further in Romans chapter 7. The law is good. But what is the law? The law is external. It's that stop, it's that speed limit sign, excuse me, that, that reminds me as I'm driving down Coit, wait, hold on, 45, slow down. The law is that external thing that reminds me of my guilt. It's, it's external and it's good, but it's powerless to transform me as a driver. It has no internal power. It has no motivating force internally in me. But the Spirit is not just good, but the Spirit is God living inside me, dwelling inside every believer. And so the Spirit is internally working within my heart in a new, in serving in the new way of the Spirit. And you have, now that you know Christ, not just a ticket stamped for heaven, but the Holy Spirit of God working inside you by which when those thoughts and when those patterns come up, you're going to say, I, I'm, I, I'm dead to sin. I don't have to go there because I have the power of Holy Spirit working inside me. And notice right there, I just I dropped the article there. Some of you were here to last week to enjoy my pastor, Pastor Bruce. One of the things that Pastor Bruce always said that stuck out to me as I was growing up is he never, when he, when he talked about Holy Spirit, he would never say the Holy Spirit. The, he would always say Holy Spirit. 
you know, occasionally I'll call Elizabeth the wife. You know what that means, right? The wife. I got to ask the wife. But we don't. That's impersonal. We don't do. And why, we we often though call Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. But Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who has come to indwell every believer and empower us to walk in the newness of life. And so when that temptation comes, when that pull to do wrong comes, when I am tempted to go back to those old patterns or that faulty thinking that I've just grown so accustomed to, the Holy Spirit is there to remind me and for me to push into and say, no, the truth is the power of that sin is broken in my life and I no longer have to obey that master. So what do we do? The, the focus of this passage here, the last few verses here, and particularly verses 19, it said it again, it said it previously in verse 13. There's a repetition in this passage of presenting or offering ourselves to God. Present your members to God. Present yourselves to God. Or some translations say, offer yourselves to God. This idea of, of growing in holiness, justification happens in an instant. It happens in a moment. But sanctification happens moment by moment over a long haul with time and with struggle and with effort. And the idea, our responsibility, we do have a responsibility in this growth and transformation. And our responsibility is primarily this to present ourselves, to offer ourselves. Three A words. When I think about presenting ourselves, what it means to present ourselves to God. Availability, acknowledgement, and activity. We say, God, I'm here. I'm available. We acknowledge our need. I don't have this power within me. I need you, Holy Spirit. I need your power to withstand this, to be transformed. And then there are activities, yes. There are things that God has given us to do that can help us stand in grace. Those things, what theologians have often called the common graces, the common means of grace to grow us. And there are things like we're doing right now to gather and sing, to open God's word, to be in accountability and fellowship with one another. Those are the common means of grace. Those are the ways of presenting ourselves, offering ourselves to God by which he transforms us. But the good news here is that you, you don't do it alone. You don't do it in your own power. You do it with the very spirit of the living God who, if you know Jesus, indwells you right now and empowers you to be transformed. I got word this week um, of another adultery, another divorce. And you know, as a pastor, it both surprises you and doesn't surprise you every time you hear about it. 
it surprises you sometimes. It goes, man, they seem like, you know, how could they be living this dual life? Sometimes it's, it doesn't surprise me because I look at the situation, and in this case, I look at the situation, and I think, no, it doesn't surprise me because here's a person who is pulled away from all the common means of grace that God has given us, pulled away from fellowship with other men, pulled away from Bible study, pulled away from meeting together with the church family, not presenting oneself to God. It's like I have a little campfire over here, and I take one of those logs that's burning. I grab one of those logs, and I take it over here, and I set it on the other side of the stage. What happens to this one log? It goes out. And folks, I'm not hot enough. I'm not powerful enough to be pulled away from the common grace, from the gathering of God's people and presenting myself in God's word and through prayer and through song and all these corporate and as well as personal means to present myself to God by which he transforms me. And off by myself and apart from the spirit of God and apart from these tools, these activities that he has given us, we're snuffed out. I want to ask you to close your eyes as we close here this morning. Maybe Holy Spirit has laid something on your heart this morning. You know what? It's just one thing. Like, I, God, I have pulled away from this. I have removed myself from the fire. I have not made myself available to you or acknowledged my weakness to you. Maybe Holy Spirit is putting something in your mind this morning of some discipline, some activity that you need to avail yourself to. So Holy Spirit, bring those things to mind. Work in us as we so desperately need you. We so desperately need your power. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for rescuing us from our sin and thank you for transforming us from slaves to sin to slaves to righteousness. Holy Spirit, be strong in our hearts. Holy Spirit, work powerfully. Remind us, convict us of sin, righteousness and judgment, judgment and perfect in us the work that you have begun. God, we avail ourselves to you. We acknowledge our weakness. Empower us by Holy Spirit, not only to be forgiven, but to be transformed. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray.